the joy of Welcome to the Joy of Serious Literature, the only internet podcast dedicated to the comprehensive examination of literature, whose host once announced to a crowd of old church ladies that he didn't much like to read. And I have news. The Joy of Serious Literature has moved, physically. Drunk on hubris, I have packed up my dismal little life in northern Indiana and moved myself all the way to the other side of the world, by which I mean I have literally moved to China. For the next few months, I am going to be residing in a city called Xiamen in Fujian province. For those of you with a map handy, Xiamen is right across from the southern part of Taiwan and is the city from which the tea that the Sons of Liberty threw into Boston Harbor originated. What does this mean for your favorite podcast about the greater glory of literature? A couple things. First, it's meant that this most recent episode of The Joy of Serious Literature has been seriously delayed. It took me a long time to get myself settled here in China. And once I did get myself settled, and the script for this episode just about written, I realized that my apartment was infested with bed bugs, and I was forced to effectively flee into the night in a blind terror, my most treasured belongings stuffed into plastic bags. Second, there is likely going to be a noticeable decline in the quality of the audio. I brought all my recording equipment with me, but since I'm now living in a tiny apartment in a towering tenement in a city of 3 million people, it's going to be just about impossible to find a quiet place to record. I'm going to do my best to minimize this, but there's going to be background noise. You're going to hear some motorbikes driving past, some doors closing, some folks hollering at each other in Mandarin. I apologize for that, but it is what it is, and we are all going to have to just gird our loins and persevere. Xiamen is what you might call a sea-oriented city. It sits on an island. It's been a major seaport for hundreds and hundreds of years. Marco Polo, for example, supposedly set sail from Xiamen on his journey back to Venice. And you can feel the presence of the sea in almost every detail of the city. Every night, for example, the skyscrapers downtown use massive arrays of LED lights to project onto their cement bodies images of swimming dolphins and sailing junks. And likewise, the local cuisine consists mostly of seafood. Grilled fish arrayed on rice, squids boiled in soups, stir-fried jellyfish. There is, in fact, a massive fish wholesaler right near my apartment. The day after I arrived here, early on a Sunday morning, I was walking along the strip of terraced concrete that separates that wholesaler from the sea, what you might call shaman's equivalent of a boardwalk, except, you know, without any boards. All of a sudden, I could hear this voice echoing down the walkway, repeating the same short sentence again and again and again, rapidly, like it were bullets flying out of a machine gun. Renshini Hengaoxing. Renshini Hengaoxing. Renshini Hengaoxing. Renshini Hengaoxing. Renshini Hengaoxing. Now, that's not exactly the sentence I heard. That sentence I just said is the Chinese equivalent of pleased to meet you. I have no idea what sentence I heard. Fresh off the boat, I couldn't understand a single word of it. I'm not even sure it was even a Chinese sentence. The words were so fast and jumbled together. But it gives you the idea, at least, of the sonic presence of the thing. And so he did what any curious interloper would do. I followed the sound. And at the origin of the sound, I found two things. A stereo system sitting on a ledge, and then a significant group of people, maybe 30 altogether, gathered around this place where the cement walkway dipped down into the sea. The way they were gathered, I could tell they were watching something. Climbing up onto a higher terrace, I was able to see down into the thick of the crowd. At the center of it, there was a man hunched all the way down, 
grabbing octopuses out of a bucket and then tossing them out into the sea. Suddenly I realized this is what everyone on that strip of cement was doing. Behind me, teams of people were carrying giant white totes out the front door of the wholesaler, who in China generally sell their produce alive, stuffed with seawater and octopi, and then lugging them down in teams of five or six down the stairs to the sea. There must have been half a dozen totes in motion at any given moment, some going back for more, some arriving with fresh octopi, while all the while people in the crowd took turns, one by one, reaching their hands into the giant white totes to grab an octopus and then chuck it out into the water, sometimes like a baseball, sometimes like a frisbee, sometimes like a tomahawk. Well, meanwhile, that voice blared out the same sentence again and again. Renshini Hengaoshing, Renshini Hengaoshing, Renshini Hengaoshing. For about 10 or 15 minutes, I sat on a cement wall watching them, listening to that voice and thinking about what it was exactly that was unfolding in front of me. Who were these people? Why were they doing what they were doing? Was this the Chinese equivalent of PETA? Why did they care so much about liberating octopi from the prison of a fish market when more than likely every day they ate fish? But then I remembered a poem a poem by the very old, very famous poet, Bai Juyi. If you've never heard of Bai Juyi, B-A-I space J-U-Y-I, that might be because in English he's more commonly called Po Chuai, P-O space C-H-U hyphen I, because of a certain confusion involving the difference between the way you pronounce his name in literary Chinese and modern colloquial Mandarin. But whatever. We're calling him Bai Juyi because that's what they call him in China today, and I'm sitting in China, so it only seems appropriate to use their preferred name for one of their preferred poets. The poem I remembered was about a goose. It's not a very long poem. It's a simple poem, like almost all of Bai Juyi's poems. But it's one of my favorites in the whole of Chinese poetry. It begins like this. Snow is heavy in Shenyang this tenth year winter. River water spawns ice. Tree branches break and fall, and hungry birds flock east and west by the hundred, a migrant goose crying starvation loudest among them. Bai Juyi lived about 1300 years ago during what's called the Tang Dynasty, which ran from 618 AD to 907 AD, and was in a lot of ways the apex of Chinese civilization, the moment when China was at its wealthiest, its most influential, its most glorious. All the world, from the edge of the Byzantine Empire to the islands of Southeast Asia, all looked to China as the absolute center of the world. Except Bai Juyi lived at the end of the Tang Dynasty, so he was living while this golden age was clearly coming to an end. Recently, the country had been torn apart by a devastating civil war that killed millions at a time when there weren't very many millions to kill. Though the imperial government had ultimately won that civil war, the cost of the war and political strain of the war left the government weak and rotten with corrupt feudal warlords who cared about little other than expanding and consolidating their own wealth and power. Rebellions were frequent, famines were almost constant, the emperors who were supposed to be the guiding light of the nation hardly even seemed to care anymore whether the country lived or died, preferring to squander themselves and the national budget in luxury and asinine schemes to find elixirs of immortality. Things were falling apart. And in those lines I just quoted, those opening moments of coldness and hunger, you can feel that collapse in the tone and fringes of the image he crafts. If the birds are starving, surely people too must be starving. 
Maybe this isn't yet a moment of famine, but there's famine in the air. The world is precarious. And you can feel in the poem as it progresses that feeling of desperation, of anxiety, of troubled times, build and build. From the very beginning, it's a poem that is, even though you might not realize it at first, but how things aren't right in the world. Reading the poem you imagine Baiju Yi, out for a morning stroll, up on the bank somewhere, looking down at this river and these birds. Bai tells us that in its hunger, this particular goose waddles through the snowdrifts, pecking frantically, searching for a droplet of seed or a blade of grass. But it doesn't find any, or it doesn't find enough, and it gets visibly weaker and weaker before his eyes, and eventually it gets so weak that it can't even fly anymore. All its strength is gone, and some river boy comes up and catches the goose in a net. But Bai notices that the boy doesn't immediately kill and eat the bird. The boy, a budding capitalist, senses an opportunity and bundles the goose up in his arms and sets off for the town market to sell the goose alive. Now, just about every poet who has ever lived has turned their pen at one point or another to the troubles of their times. But what makes the fact that you have Bai Ju Yi hinting at the doom of the world and taking an interest in a single suffering goose? is that Bai Yi was very much one of the people responsible for that world. Bai Yi, like most of the great ancient Chinese poets, Li Po, Du Fu, Su Dong Po, was a government bureaucrat, and not some minor public functionary like Herman Melville, punching the clock at the customs house. He served for a while in what amounted to the imperial cabinet, tutoring the emperor's eldest son, and served as the governor of three different provinces, two of which comprised the famous vital cities of Suzhou and Hangzhou. He was a man of real political power in China. Not immense power, but enough power that he was there on the stage as the sun set on his era. And he tried to use that power very directly and publicly to try and save China from itself, to try and make the Chinese government live up to its responsibility to govern, clean up its act, and push back in some measure against the doom that was encroaching on every inch of that gigantic nation at the center of the world. He protested openly in the court, the way the government was ignoring the nation's problems. He used his fame as a poet to circulate dozens of political protest poems, criticizing the state of the government, the decadence and selfishness of Chinese society, the ostentatiousness and luxury that corrupted Chinese religion, even when he felt to be the unfair distribution of wealth in ancient China. He has this marvelous poem, for example, that I love to death about watching all these generals have a great banquet, celebrating some minor victory over some minor rebels, while at the same time there are rumors that often one of the provinces of the empire, people are so hungry that they've turned to cannibalism. All that poetry and protest, though, didn't make much of a difference. The government was too corrupt, too incompetent, too paralyzed by internal divisions and civil strife. The emperor ignored his advice. The powerful ignored his poems. By himself, wasn't much gifted in the arts of political maneuvering that might have allowed him to force his will onto the apparatuses of the state. He was a poet, not a Lyndon Johnson. And so in some measure, reading his poems, especially his later poems, like this poem, the poems he wrote after his political moment in the sun had passed, is like reading the poems of a Jacques Necker or a James Buchanan, someone who had wanted to save the world from some great threat and had the chance to save the world, or almost had the chance, but failed, 
and knows that they have failed, that they were overmatched or they were fools, and now must reconcile themselves to both their own impotence and the way in which the great cause they devoted their life to furthering and saving has become a lost cause. What's left to them? What's left to Baijui? Buddhism, poetry, urban park design, and this goose. Bai decides to follow the boy to market. By the time he wrote this poem, as I alluded to before, Bai Juyi was a relatively old man. His political career was over. The poetic fame that had made him a national celebrity as a young man had faded into mere respect and veneration. But more than that, he had paid a heavy price for his political activism. Namely, he had gotten himself branded as a traitor, as a dissident, as disloyal to his emperor, and therefore sent into exile again and again out into the hinterlands of China sent to some remote village, sent to some city far from the capital. Exiles during which his children died, exiles during which one of his wives died, exiles during which every day he feared that the order might arrive, transforming his exile from home into an exile from existence. He is the goose. He writes, Once a man of the north, I am accused and exiled here. Man and bird, though different, were both visitors, and it hurts a visiting man to see a visiting bird's pain. And so he decides to buy the goose and set it free. And what you have in that moment is this moment of seizing kindness from the jaws of futility. The world is fallen, he has failed, and yet here is this goose, and he will give this goose mercy. And in giving it mercy, he can achieve for the world some sliver of redemption. He can't save these people from starvation. He can't save China from itself. He can't find peace or contentment for himself. But he can give this goose its freedom. And that is something. The consolation of an aging man with a sincere heart in a time of decline. But then. But then the poem takes another turn. A turn that shows why Bai Juyi truly was a master. And not just an old man prone to waxing elegiac about time in the good old days. The turn is instant. He gives us no moment to dwell sentimentally on this act of crystalline piety he's crafted for himself. Immediately, the poem moves on to by watching the goose take off again and fly up into the clouds. The goose once again free to make its own decisions. And what it does, it seems, is make a catastrophically bad decision. Goose! Goose! Bai cries out. Above all else, don't fly away to the northwest. There and why she, rebels still loose, there's no peace. Just a million armored soldiers, long massed for battle, imperial and rebel armies, grown old, facing each other. Starved and exhausted, they'd love to get a hold of you, those tough soldiers. They'd shoot you and have a feast, then pluck your wings clean to feather their arrows. Instead of ending with the elegance of liberty and kindness, the poem's final image is of the goose spared the pot, being plucked clean to further the cause of war and chaos. With Bai Juyi, the once mighty bureaucrat, the governor of Hangzhou and Suzhou, the tutor to the crown prince, pleading with the goose not to make a suicidal decision, not to throw away the life it's retained only by a miracle of luck. But it's presumably futile. The goose can't understand him. It can't take advice from an aging bureaucrat, his hair falling out, his eyes growing dim about the best way to survive. Baiju Yi has given the goose a chance at life, and it's very likely the goose is going to piss that chance away. Not only piss away that chance, 
but piss away that chance in a way that sustains the crisis of the nation, prolongs the war. And this is what makes the poem so enrapturing, so haunting, because you can read it both as this poem of consolation, as this song about how, even when you're impotent to stop the big evils, solve the big problems, you can still do good, still do that one singularly good act and have that act matter. And yet it's also the opposite of that poem, a poem about the impossibility of doing good in the world, of defying the darkness, of creating good outcomes because so much is beyond your control. You can control just this one instant, this one fragment of existence, and the rest is up to whim and chance, is held not in your hands, but in the hands of fate and history. What is the goodness in freeing a goose from the jaws of death if the goose flies right back into the jaws of death? What is the good of helping people if the people take that help, take that chance, take that valuable opportunity or precious freedom and burn it in a bonfire like fools? What is the good of trying to save your country if your country, the wealthiest and most marvelous civilization on earth, is hell-bent on killing itself with selfishness and stupidity? Isn't thinking you can make a difference just arrogance? The glory of Baiju Yi's poetry is that reading him is like living inside him. He's so simple, so honest, so direct. In his poems, you achieve across a distance of 1,200 years an intimacy perhaps unparalleled in poetry, with a man who is just about a contemporary with Charlemagne. Yes, the confessional poets confessed everything to their reader, but they confessed it frequently without dignity, without self-awareness, without maturity. All scream, no reflection. But Bainju Yi lends you into his heart to see a heart worth seeing the heart of a man trying to be decent in the world, trying to be happy, trying to make a difference, doubting himself, criticizing himself, growing old, suffering, living. Living like we live, or at least how we aspire to live, with dignity and grace, with earnestness, with devotion, with humor, with kindness, with good works. What you realize reading Baiju Yi is that being alive is being alive, whether it is today in Indiana or in China during the Tang Dynasty. The questions are the same. The crises are the same. The miseries, the joys, the futilities. More than a thousand years later, you can walk down the coast in a modern Chinese city full of gleaming skyscrapers and where a person is in regular danger of getting run over by a Lamborghini and find people buying bucket loads of octopi from a fish market and liberating them back into the sea the same way that Bai Junyi once liberated a goose. For me, in that instant when I remembered this poem, there was a moment of echoing, a moment where what I knew of a civilization from books, from its thousand-year-old literature, from its legendary poets, found itself manifested in flesh and action and life. That is a hell of a thing to witness on a Sunday morning stroll. Thank you. This has been Episode 9 of The Joy of Serious Literature. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful to have you, especially after the long delay in releasing this episode. What can I say? Bedbugs are hard. If you're interested in reading more of Baiju Yi's work, the book I would recommend to you is The Selected Poems of Po Chuai, translated by David Hinton and published by the literary heroes at New Directions. It's from Hinton's book that I've drawn, with a few personal tweaks, the translation of the poem I've used here. And Hinton's book is full of marvelous, intimate poems that stretch out across the immense distance of time with remarkable fluidity, immediacy, humanity, and humor. And 
If you're interested in learning more about Chinese poetry in general, about not just Bai Ju Yi, but Li Po and Du Fu and so on, I can also recommend to you the book Crossing the Yellow River, 300 Poems from the Chinese, translated by Sam Hamill. Almost every one of those poems, by dozens of different poets, is truly a remarkable work of poetry. And reading them, it is amazing how often you can forget that the people that wrote them lived more than a millennia ago, before electric light, before the printing press, before almost any Western writer you've ever heard of was even born. As ever, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at VainlyDrabSatan or send me an email at VainlyDrabSatan at gmail.com. I love receiving your emails, and I'm doing my best to reply to all of them with the engagement and elegance that they deserve. Okay, that's enough. I've been Bryant Davis. This has been the joy of serious literature. Join me again next time, when we'll be discussing what Homer's The Iliad can teach us about our contemporary politicization of history. Topical, I know. Except the event that inspired this upcoming episode feels like it happened 30 years ago. Time moves so fast these days. But whatever. Stay tuned. It'll be worth your while. Godspeed.